What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Super Bowl 18, a matchup between... It's January 22nd, 1984. Redskins versus Raiders. And imagine you're watching this game on CBS. Everything is so 80s, and you are loving it. Barry Manilow singing the national anthem. Then Disney has this definitely not cheesy halftime show. And the ads, I mean, listen to these jingles. These airlines sound almost the same. A lot of advertising was like this back then. Straightforward, happy people showing the product front and center. Somebody sings the tagline. Then it's the third quarter. 6.32, left to play. The Redskins are getting pummeled by the Raiders. The play ends. 42-yard punt. No return, so the net is 40. Maybe you're eating nachos. Maybe you're chatting. The game fades to black. And then you see a commercial that's like no ad you've ever seen. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification. It starts with hundreds of emotionless men mindlessly marching through a tube. In what is clearly some dystopian future, dressed in rags, very blue lighting. Can you hear this kind of industrial grinding sounds? The shrill of a coal whistle in the background. It is this gigantic cavernous room. A lot of our skinhead drones are sort of sitting in rapt attention, looking at this giant screen. We are one people. We one one resolve. Then suddenly this woman, a young athlete, who's dressed out of character for everything else we've seen, in a track outfit carrying a hammer, like a track and field hammer, comes running in, pursued by the thought police. Takes the hammer and swings it around and hurls it at the telescreen, which then smashes and it explodes, bringing us to the title... And the message is... On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. I'm pretty sure my first reaction was, whoa. From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brands you can trust. 
Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobcock. McDonald's Big Mac. Few ads have had the impact and legacy of Apple's 1984 Super Bowl commercial. It's the reason we care about Super Bowl ads today. It's the reason we think of Apple as the brand for creative rebels. This ad broke all the rules of advertising. It was dark and scary. It didn't even show the product. It didn't talk about its features. It was a metaphor, and it looked like a movie. It may seem brilliant now, but it was a huge risk at the time. And how it ended up on the Super Bowl is a drama in its own right, involving a horrifying casting call, a battle between Apple's board and Steve Jobs, and a game-time decision that changed Apple and advertising forever. Stay with us. Steve Jobs liked to say, it's better to be a pirate than join the Navy. But by the early 80s, Apple was a startup that was growing up, starting to look more staid than scrappy. Its headquarters was this drab office park of beige buildings covered in stucco, the kind of place you might find a dentist office. So when one team had to move into a new building across the street, it stuck a pirate flag on the roof. In that building, they were plotting something they thought would really change computing and help them beat back competition from IBM. But in the meantime, what the company was actually selling was the Apple II, one of the first personal computers, the kind with green text on a black screen. You can edit right here on the screen. You can add words like this, or you can remove words like that. Like a lot of ads back then, Apple's were pretty basic, just a celebrity demonstrating the product. Apple's spokesman was late-night host Dick Cavett. Or you can move whole paragraphs around to anywhere you want them. I couldn't believe these were actual Apple ads. They look low-budget. One is even a bit sexist. The whole punchline is that a woman might have interests beyond the home. I'm here with an average American homemaker with her own Apple personal computer. Uh, Jill, do you use your Apple for household budgeting? And... Actually, I'm working in gold futures. Oh, well, you could probably put a lot of recipes in there. Eh? Mm-hmm. And you can do trend analyses, generate bar graphs. I think it might actually surprise people that, that the same person who wrote that also wrote 1984. Oh, we are very flexible. I've also done ads for chemical toilets. and. Uh... <laughs> yeah. This is Steve Hayden. I'm an aging copywriter, formerly not an aging copywriter. Back in the 80s, Steve Hayden wrote nearly all of Apple's ads at an agency called Shiat Day. Shiat Day wasn't a big Madison Avenue firm. Before the Apple account, Hayden had mostly been writing spots for second-tier liquor companies. But Apple was zooming, and its ad budget soaring. Steve Hayden said Apple's account went from something like $5 million to $100 million in just three years. But Apple now had stiff competition and was falling behind. IBM had come out with its own PC. And by 1983, Business Week declared IBM the winner of the PC race. But Steve Jobs was working on something. He summoned Steve Hayden to one of those blob buildings in Apple's office park. As Hayden walked in, he noticed the pirate flag flying on the roof. A small team was inside creating a new kind of computer. Instead of complicated commands, the screen had pictures, and you could click on things with a mouse. Its code name was Macintosh, and it was coming in 1984. Jobs said, I need an ad to announce the advent of Macintosh that will stop the world in its tracks. And I said, oh, that's pretty difficult. 
And uh, he said, well, whatever it takes. That sounds like Steve Jobs. Steve Hayden and his team had a couple of weeks to come up with something big enough for his impossible demands. And as they were racking their brains, they came across a line that caught their eye. Why 1984 won't be like 1984. It was actually in a pile of rejected ideas. They'd pitched it to Apple before for a different computer, the Apple III. But Jobs had squashed that idea. He didn't want to use a grandiose line on what he thought was a mediocre machine. But now the year 1984 was near, George Orwell was on everyone's mind, and the Macintosh seemed actually revolutionary. So they started to turn this one line into the beginnings of a TV commercial. You know, we originally had thought of it as kind of a humorous, dystopian view. What would that have looked like? And still with sort of uh, people marching in, you know, white bunny suits, and um, but not kind of the dire skinhead vision. Think more Jetsons than Alien. But it just so happened the guy who directed Alien was in town, Ridley Scott. And our producer, Richard O'Neill, knew Ridley had met him and said, let me see if I can meet with him on the set, talk to him about this project, and get him into the office. I thought, my God, they're mad. This is Ridley Scott in an interview shot in 1983. Because this, ter- this is terrific from a, a filmic point of view. And, and I know exactly how to do a kind of pastiche on what 1984 may be. So he actually came into the office and said, you know, this shouldn't be humorous at all. Metropolis should be our guide for realizing this. How do you feel about that? And I said, I think that's great. And I thought it was such a dramatic idea that it would either be totally successful or would all get put in state pen. The original plan for the ad called for an athlete to run into the auditorium and hurl a baseball bat at a big brother-like dictator projected on a giant screen. Which Ridley pointed out and said a sledgehammer would be much more international. And by the way, a baseball bat wouldn't break the screen. Steve Hayden and his team had their crazy idea. They had their director. They had the finished storyboard. Now they just had to get it past their boss, ad executive Jay Shiat. We're in this sad travel lodge on the second floor with all these storyboards and uh, print ads lined up. And Jay is tearing them all to pieces, including the 1984 spot. Nothing is good enough. Nothing is right. Jay Shiat often freaked out the night before a big presentation. Maybe it was a tactic. Bully his team so they'd stay up all night and come up with something better. But this time they felt like they'd given this all they had. The creative director took the boss aside. And he took Jay out on the balcony of this travel lodge, lit a cigarette and said, look, it is what we've got. This is what we got. You want to cancel the meeting? Cancel the meeting. I can't do any better than this. The boss gave in, and the next morning the team set out to show Apple what they got. At the meeting were Steve Jobs and Apple's new CEO, who had just come over from Pepsi, John Scully. What is the first thing you hear in the room after they present this? The first thing was Steve just saying, oh, shit, Uh, this is amazing. This is John Scully. We're all looking at it. We're saying, this is so outrageous. Uh, What do you think people are going to think? You know, are they going to get get the message that that Macintosh 
is contrary to everything that George Orwell imagined in 1984. So we go off and we give the agency um, approval to make the commercial. But it was a big gamble. The typical Apple ad in the early 80s cost about $50,000 to make. This one was going to cost 10 times that. Jobs and Scully had given the green light, but also had some advice for Steve Hayden. Seeing Lee and me look like, uh, you know, we hadn't slept in several weeks, they, they voiced in the meeting concern that maybe we should take a weekend off. But Steve Jobs was a kind of mercurial dictator, too. A couple of days later, he called Steve Hayden back with a request that seemed unreasonable. Jobs worried the 1984 ad would create what he called an information vacuum because it didn't say anything specific about the Mac itself. So he ordered Hayden to create a 20-page magazine insert that show everything about this new kind of computer, how to use a mouse, what the interface looks like, how you can pick up the computer with a handle on the top. It was one of those impossible Steve Jobs requests. So much for arrest. There's no copy. There's no concept. Nothing has been started. The printing deadlines alone will kill us. We, we can't do it. And, of course, Jobs did his reality distortion magic and pounded the table. And we all went off to attempt to do a 20-page insert at the same time these, all this other stuff was in production. But the important thing was that 1984 was greenlit. They had Ridley Scott. Shooting would start soon at a big studio on the edge of London. They were ready to make something epic. That is, until a crazy casting call and a whole series of crises. That's in a minute. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back. Steve Hayden may have written the 1984 ad, but he didn't get to attend the shoot. His boss asked him to oversee some of the other ads filming in L.A. He was bummed. Of course. I mean, it's Ridley Scott, Shepard in Stages. Are you kidding? Of course I was bummed. I was uh, severely depressed. Steve's boss made it up to him, promoted him to vice president. It meant he could now sign company checks. So this isn't just a bullshit promotion title. I mean, it's in the charter of the agency that a vice president is an officer of the company. This comes into play later. 
The crew set up at Shepherd Inn Studios on the edge of London. Ridley Scott built an elaborate, cavernous set that would have fit on Alien or Blade Runner. He put jet engines on the wall to give it an eerie, futuristic look. Then came a strange casting call. For this ad, Ridley needed a heroine who could convincingly and safely throw a giant hammer, a man who could play the part of Big Brother, oh, and 150 ball guys. To cast the star who'd shatter Big Brother, they brought in models and actresses. But they had a problem. No one could handle the unwieldy hammer. They didn't just need an actress who could throw it. They needed her to swing it in circles above her head and hurl it at the screen. Finally, a highly skilled discus thrower auditioned for the part. Her name was Anya Major. First problem, solved. But then Ridley Scott was having trouble casting the dictator. At first, there were no plans for any dialogue in the spot. And that made auditions difficult. All these British actors would come in and try on various glasses, and Ridley couldn't tell one from another. Steve Hayden was back in L.A. And I, I get this um, panicked call from our producer, Richard O'Neill, who says, uh, Ridley's having a lot of trouble casting the dictator. They need some lines to read so Ridley can distinguish one from another and figure out what to do. And could you bang out some kind of dictator speech uh, really quickly and fax it to me tonight? A lot started going through his mind about the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, about the time his brother had spent in China. He thought about his mother, who studied opera at La Scala in Italy as Mussolini rose to power. Well, we mix all of this, you know, the, the Mao, the communists, the cultural revolution, uh, the Russians, Izvestia, all of this stuff together. And I wrote this uh, speech for the dictator. The, uh, okay, today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification directives. We have created... For the first time in all He faxed it off, the actors read it, and Ridley Scott loved it, and he got an idea. This speech wouldn't just be for the auditions, the whole ad should be built around it. And he found an actor who gave the perfect manic performance. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information Meanwhile, Steve Hayden was still stuck in California, but his colleague was on the set in London. Well, I'm Fred Goldberg, I'm an ex- advertising guy. Fred was Shia Day's account manager on the Apple account. And the ad was still missing something. A bunch of bald men who'd look like a conformist mass of anonymous people. Actors are expensive, and the crew found an alternative. About 80% of them were actual skinheads. Skinheads originated in London in the 60s. Disenchanted youth fed up with a bad economy. They'd shave their hair to make a statement. Then they turned to punk music, and by the 80s, the movement splintered, and some became violently racist. They were often in the news in the 80s for attacking Londoners of South Asian descent. Ridley Scott, though, sounds a bit perplexed by them in that 1983 interview filmed on the set. For some reason or other, they all seemed to walk around with shaved heads. Mm. And so we organized one of these rather frightening casting sessions where there were about three or 400 uh, youths but the deal was this. The skinheads were willing to work for a lot less money than actors. And the production team didn't think twice. Did you have any qualms about that? You mean paying them? Yeah. Never thought about it. But, uh, you know, 
<laughs> I guess I do now <laughs> on uh, on hindsight, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, nobody's ever raised that question, but uh, that's a good one. The ad used about 150 skinheads marching through tubes and sitting in the audience of the dictator's speech. Behind the scenes, they were causing problems. They hit on Fred's 14-year-old daughter. They spied on the actress Mamie Van Doren, who was shooting a movie nearby. They made nasty, sexist comments as Anya ran through the set with her hammer. They started, it was rubble. You know, it was supposed to look like it was a, um, sort of like a bombed-out building, decrepit, and falling apart. There was a lot of rubble on the ground. They started throwing it at each other, you know, joking around, and it got kind of out of hand. Security handled it, but then the crew ran into their next problem. Back in L.A., Steve Hayden got a frantic call from the producer on set. After two days of shooting, Ridley only had enough footage for a 30-second spot. He needed another day, but they were out of money, and Apple was refusing to sign off on the overage. And that's when I, I said hey, I just got made a vice president. I was told I'm an officer of the company. I can sign legal documents binding the company to pay for overages. So Steve Hayden signed, and he rationalized it this way. Well, either the spot will fail and I'll be fired. The spot will succeed and I'll be okay. Uh, But if I'm fired anyway, then the overage doesn't matter that much. Ridley got more footage, including those dramatic overhead shots of the guys walking in the tube. Then production wrapped so they could go edit. The finished spot looked more like a movie than an ad. If you watch the beginning carefully, there's some amazing editing that foreshadows the climax. Amid the shots of bald drones marching in sepia, you see flashes of the athlete running, and then another flash of the thought police chasing her. It's like an entire epic, an entire story of a world, told in 60 seconds. By the fall, the ad was finished, but a lot of things still had to happen. The team didn't have a plan for where to run it, and the Apple board hadn't even seen it yet. But Steve Jobs wanted to show it off. He chose a big gathering for Apple's Salesforce that October for the ad's debut. Jobs was introducing the Macintosh and also trying to pump up the dealers for a fight. This was a time when Apple was in serious business trouble. IBM had been really kicking their butt. Apple was losing sales. They were losing distribution. So Jobs took a swing at Goliath. He walked up to the podium and launched into a speech that chronicled his version of IBM's history. It is 1958. IBM passes up the chance to buy a young, fledgling company. Fred Goldberg and Steve Hayden were watching in the audience. You know, only IBM could define the future. Do we want IBM to define the future? No, we don't. You know, it was a very rousing speech that that had kind of a faux history of IBM's depredations. Two years later, Xerox is born, and IBM has been kicking themselves ever since. It was like showing people how you're going to save them from this catastrophe. It is now 1984. It appears IBM wants it all. When he introduced this thing, my stomach actually went over. I was so moved. 
Will Big Blue dominate the entire computer industry? The entire information age? Was George Orwell right about 1984? And then after that ran the spot. For the day we the first It was unbelievable. On January 24, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984... And I remember Jobs, he had this kind of shit-eating grin on his face, just nodding his head up and down, and he just let people continue to roar and clap and applaud. You can hear it on the video. When you watch it, it went on for like two minutes. It was just a really incredible, emotional situation. That ad is going to run one week before Macintosh is introduced. And our ad agency that put it together is here today. I guess they just heard what you thought. And yet, despite all that, the ad almost never airs. That's right. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. The ad was a hit at the Hawaii meeting. The sales force was energized to take on IBM, but the ad needed a home. Where do you run a spot like this? This is Steve Hayden, the guy who wrote the ad. If the job is to stop the world in its tracks, where do you run it? And the media director of Shaite Hank Antos said there's only one place you can run this, the Super Bowl. And Steve Jobs naturally said, I don't know a single person who watches the Super Bowl. And I said, of course you don't. You're Steve Jobs. There are a lot of reasons this ad is legendary. One of them is this myth that the ad only ran once. Like there was this brilliant plan to spend tons of money making this ad only to drop it at the Super Bowl and create a sensation. About that. First, it's not really true. The ad ran a few times on local TV stations before the Super Bowl. No one seemed to notice. And second, that was never even the plan. In fact, the ad agency Shiat Day had actually bought three minutes of Super Bowl airtime for Apple. They wanted to run the 1984 spot twice that night and then follow up with a couple of simple ads showing the Mac and how it worked. 
But what they didn't bet on was that Apple itself could get in the way. So it's about uh, December 10th. This is John Scully again, Apple's former CEO. We're sitting around the Apple board meeting. We've gone through all of our business plans and what we're intending to do the next year. And the board was anxious to see this new commercial that we were going to be launching the Macintosh with. Where we'd spent all this money. Because we were betting so much of the future of the company on, on Mac. And the average age of our board was in their 50s and in their 60s. So they weren't exactly familiar with you know, things that were kind of young and hip. When the lights came back up, every single board member had their heads, their heads in their hands. There's just dead silence. They hated it. And then everyone turns around and looks at me. And they said, you're not going to run that thing, are you? And what do you say? And I, and I say, well, yes. I said, this is a, a really great commercial. What did they hate? Everything about it. The fact that there was no picture of the product. There was no demonstration of what the product could do. It was uh, depressing and dark and scary. And they said, we really think you shouldn't run it. We think it's a terrible idea. And I was supposed to be the adult supervision in the room. And they couldn't believe that I was in favor of this. And, and, and of course, they were used to Steve, you know, thinking about outrageous things of, of uh, how to promote Apple. So um, they were really perplexed from it. And they, they thought it was just a terrible commercial and a terrible idea. That puts you in a very difficult position, right? Well, sure, sure it did. The ad cost half a million to make. It would cost a lot of money to run on the Super Bowl. The board couldn't believe Scully would be okay with blowing so much of the company's ad budget. They tell him it's ridiculous. Yeah, we think this is the dumbest thing we've ever heard of before. So please try to sell the time. Meaning sell the three minutes of advertising back to CBS. After this board meeting, it was a few weeks before the Super Bowl, and Steve Jobs made a call. Hello. Hi, Steve. Hi, this is Steve Wozniak. Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple. I'm here to talk about the 1984 ad from Apple Computer. Woz had been in a plane crash in 1981 and was pretty badly hurt. He took time away from Apple and returned a couple of years later as a product developer. He didn't want to be involved in big corporate decisions. And that's when Steve Jobs called him up. Yeah, I I got a call from Steve Jobs to come over to the Macintosh building at some hour in the evening, you know, I think it was darkish, you know, like 6 p.m., come over and see it. And we didn't say what it was to see, come over and see something. The room had a big TV and a giant VCR, and Jobs played the ad for Waz. I was just dumbfounded. This was like better than any science fiction trailer. It was as good as it gets, and it it had all the meaning. I said, oh, we're going to show it at the Super Bowl, right? And Steve said, no, the board of directors voted against it. And I was stunned because I had felt that I had just witnessed a piece of art. And I thought that the world should not be deprived of this great A, science fiction, and B, you know, message of where computing's going. It was just the finest ad I'd ever seen, so finest commercial I'd ever seen. And I wanted it to be shown. And he said, and it cost. $800,000 for half a minute to commercial, you know. 
And I stood there and I was thinking, and so I, right there, I decided I offered to pay $400,000 if Steve would pay the other half. Do you know if Steve Jobs considered paying the other half? I, he didn't show any any response at all. Steve must have thought I was very naive, thinking that the two of us could could show an Apple ad. We can't. Apple really owns it. The company owns it, not two people. But it was a big straw. It was a very strong statement, and it was honest and real. It didn't come to that, but I'm sure this moment stayed in Jobs' head. The Friday before the Super Bowl, we get a call from New York at about uh, 2.30 L.A. time saying there's no buyer for the third minute. Shia Day had managed to sell two of the three minutes of Super Bowl airtime. In hindsight, I found that they found out later that they didn't try that hard to sell the time. Like it or not, Apple still had to fill 60 seconds in front of perhaps the biggest possible television audience. So it was that Friday that Jobs had to make the decision. We said, well, we can run two of the demo spots or one 1984 spot. The board said, don't do it. The ad agency whispered in his ear, do it. It was almost literally a game-time decision. Jobs said, yes, he'd run 1984. John Riggins with the jacket on over on the red skip. Yes, I did watch it on TV live. I think I was home alone. I didn't go to a Super Bowl party. I was washing dishes after the spot aired, and I got a call from Jay in New York who said, how does it feel to be a fucking star? And I said, I don't know. I'm washing dishes. (laughs) Was the board angry when it ran anyway? No, because it was was so successful. They they were just uh, amazed, you know. they said, well, we were obviously wrong. Um, and John, you and Shia Day and, and Steve obviously know more about advertising than we do. So congratulations. The network news, the CBC, the BBC. It was picked up by local television stations all over the country. It was picked up by other networks. They were saying the game was boring, but did you see the spot? Because no one had ever seen a television commercial that was anything like the Macintosh 1984 commercial. And they played it over and over and over again on uh, news broadcast channels. And that, I think, had a larger impact and reached more people than the game itself. Shiat Day estimated Apple got $45 million of free advertising with all the news programs showing the ad over and over again. Customers flocked to Apple dealers. One of the people watching all this was a guy at USA Today. On Monday, people got up, and I, you know, I think their coffee tasted the same, and they, they still took the same route to work. But something clearly had changed. Bob Garfield spent 25 years as an ad critic. He's now co-host of On the Media. Hardly anything in the intervening three and a half decades has been worthy of the attention. Hardly anything. I mean, there have been... I don't know, thousands different commercials made just for the Super Bowl since then. And I don't think there were a half dozen that have any kind of lingering cultural relevance. Um, but that's what happened. It became, it became the, the advertising show, the Super Bowl of advertising. 
Bob thinks 1984 is the greatest ad of all time. It showed that an ad could be an idea. It didn't have to show the product and how it worked. It could create a feeling. And it touched uh, the psychology a lot of, of a lot of people. You know, we there were many people who think of themselves by not by what they are, but what they aren't. They they see themselves as iconoclasts. They were they march to a different drummer. Some percentage of the the public, uh, you could call it the the Apple mentality, simply believes that they're a cut above, and uh, that. That is, you know, it's a powerful appeal. He also thinks it ushered in a generation of terrible copycats, spectacle ads that were more about the agencies trying to be profound or win awards instead of actually selling something. It only took a year for Super Bowl advertising to become a thing. In 1985, Pepsi hired Ridley Scott to direct a spot starring characters from the TV show Miami Vice. He even did one for Turkish Airlines this year. Apple also tried to repeat its success the year after 1984. Steve Hayden wrote an ad called Lemmings that showed blindfolded business people walking off a cliff. It was widely panned, partly because it portrayed its own customers as mindless idiots. It was an absolute disaster, proving karmic balance. Not long after, Apple fired Shiat Day, and Steve Jobs was on his way out, too. He was a visionary, but also a hothead who had clashed with the board one too many times. When they asked him to step down from the Macintosh group, he left the company. Apple continued to lose its way and lose market share to PCs, so much so that by 1997, Apple was close to bankruptcy. It's at this moment that it brings back Steve Jobs from his exile running a computer company called Next. Good morning. Um... We were up till 3 o'clock last night finishing this uh, advertising up, and uh, I want to show it to you in a minute. This is Jobs a few weeks after his return. He's on a small stage talking to Apple managers. He's wearing shorts. And even though he's tired, and this was never meant to be seen by the public, he starts giving a classic Steve Jobs keynote. All the things that were supposedly wrong about the 1984 ad, that it showed an idea, not a product, that's now wisdom. To me, marketing's about values. This is a very complicated world. It's a very noisy world. And we're not going to get a chance to get people to remember much about us. Jobs is building up to reveal a new ad campaign. It's about an idea, not a product. Except instead of a brash startup company trying to plant a flag with a Ridley Scott epic, This ad is a beaten-down company trying to remind people who it is and who it's for. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels. The troublemakers. After this, Apple begins one of the most remarkable comebacks in business history. One that feels a little ironic at times. Apple wants you to think different, but not change things inside its computers. It throws a hammer at Big Brother, but serious listening... And it's the brand for Rebel Misfits that also became the first trillion-dollar company. In 2016, five years after Steve Jobs died, Apple celebrated its 40th anniversary. And for a brief moment, in front of a much bigger headquarters, it raised the pirate flag once again. Please. 
please leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts and get in touch. You can email us at householdname at insider.com or find our Facebook group by searching Household Name Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bobkoff. Special thanks to Tom Frank, Mira Gable, Kevin Lee, and Anna Mazarakis. This episode was produced by me with Sarah Wyman and Amy Padula. Sound design and original music by Casey Holford and John Delore. Our editors are Gianna Palmer and Peter Clowney. The executive producers are Chris Bannon, Jenny Radelet, and me. Household Name is a production of Insider Audio. Okay, hope you have a great, I don't know, podcast or whatever. Bye. Stitcher. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro. Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.